Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by, well, anybody. We are currently looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, an organization or business you know or are involved with might be interested in finding out some more information about sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please contact me online either via mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. We can start to go over how things might work and have you or your business sponsoring the Road to Success podcast. Until then, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with high-performance consultant Richard Smith. Richard Smith, mate, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Maddie. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be cool. Hey, you know, I've I've done a you know here's a bit of research and and um you've got a you know a very impressive CV and you know again you know most of the work you've done I guess is probably behind the scenes but you know you've got people like Steve Hansen, Wayne Smith, Gary Steed all you know saying you know how much of a sort of um, pivotal part you've been for them. So I guess we sort of start at the start and talk about um you know what you've done and and what it is you do now. Well, I guess I was lucky, Maddie. I, I started um, my career as an, in education, as a teacher, as a phys ed teacher, and, and went through the process and became a head of department. And, and then I was on the track to become, I was an assistant principal and sort of on that track. But at the same time, I was coaching. I was always coaching. I started coaching in 1986, and that was the first team I coached. And I guess teaching and coaching, there's a synergy and I got to a point where I hit a crossroads in 2000. I was able to go and do some postgraduate study and finish off at Canterbury University, some postgrad, and had a whole year off. And that was perhaps the moment of transition for me. And at that time, New Zealand had a poor Olympics at, the, at Sydney. And so they redesigned the high-performance support system and came in with the New Zealand Academy of Sports System. And I was lucky to get appointed as the first high-performance coach consultant in the, in the country, um, in the South Island for Academy South. And it was a Greenfields position, blank sheet. Uh, luckily, there was a man called Don Tricker, who's highly respected, as you'll imagine, who was the head of coaching for Spark. So I didn't report to Don, but I worked underneath him. And um, along with some other really good people, we started designing what high-performance coaching support might look like in this country. And yes, it is very much behind the scenes. And that's been my life work, I guess, working in high-performance environments for the last 20 years. Yeah, what did you um, – you say obviously you're a trained teacher and then you said you went back to university and did a sort of postgraduate year. What, did you study something related to high-performance then? No, it was um, it was uh, a, a, um, post-grad and educational management because I was going down the principal line. Yeah. But as with most post-grads, it, it's, it was really a, a, a management strategy leadership yeah. um postgraduate qualification. So there was a lot of stuff in there in leadership strategy, yeah. uh, professional development of others. So actually the connection with was a, it was almost like the timing was uncanny because yes. the stuff there transferred over into what we were trying to do with coaches yeah. who had no strategic leadership around their development. Yeah, certainly you're the perfect person at the, at the right time. Well, right yeah, I was, I, I was, I was learning on the go, though. I must admit, you know, yeah. defense is a good place to learn to swim. I Correct, always think. The bottom of the learning pit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Hey, look, I mean, obviously, you know, high performance is kind of where we want to focus today. And I thought maybe at the start we should just get on the on the same page and sort of um, understand, you know, in your mind, what is high performance? Look, we spent twenty years. Well, you know, we used to debate what's world class, and and and, what, and actually, I think in in many respects. The, the notion of fundamentals is key, but people think fundamentals are simple or simplistic, and they're not. It's so, so it's understanding fundamentals, and it's the execution of fundamentals on a consistent basis, and that's execution by coaches. So they deliver coaching that is sound and fundamentally based. The athletes have consistency of practice, consistency of performance because you know uh, if, if you're swinging off the back up and down all over the place you're not going to necessarily perform at the crucial moments the the, the data shows that that consistency is really really important so for me it, it, well you use the term high performance 
actually it's just about consistency of everything we do on a daily basis. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I had John Quinn on on the last episode, and um, you know he said something which is very similar to what you said. It wasn't to that question, but he said like you and I could go out and hit a golf ball now, and maybe you know we might be able to hit a shot as good as a pro, but you know out of an entire game, you know, where their job has to hit it the same every single time. So consistency is a um, is a is, is the key part, but also probably one of the toughest parts. And it's consistency of habits. It's consistency of of, of the training environment. Um, Consistency of nutrition, consistency of, of how they mentally um, manage and prepare themselves, coaches and athletes, all those things. I think it's like anything in life, but understanding there will be blips and also having strategies. You know, this is the Gilbert Anoka stuff. Gilbert talks a lot about coping strategies. What are the coping strategies that they then have to, to manage those blips as well? Yeah, um, and, and I guess, you know, Consistency, as you're talking about habits, it's sort of structure and discipline, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yep. It's structure and discipline, and um, you, you go back to um, is it Jim Collins? Um, good to great. I think he talks about um, you know um, disciplined, disciplined behaviours, disciplined action. I yeah. think is, is yeah, something yeah, yeah. he talks about. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, you know. One of the things John said last week, which could have you know really resonated with me, of just we just talked about how the importance of um, of culture in a high performance environment, and culture is quite a quite a tough thing because it's a it's a it's not very tangible. You know, everyone knows when the culture is bad, and everyone knows when the culture is good. But if you get someone, you say, right, the culture is not great at the moment. We want to improve it. It's a really sort of tough thing to to actually tangibly take action on. So, you know, I mean. How, how does a leader or a coach, I guess, you know, improve or create a high performance culture? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And, and culture is something that's actually fascinated me ever since I started because people used to bandy it around about culture. Oh, well, it's just part of the culture. And of course, if it wasn't something that was particularly productive to the environment, well, then it's not a good thing to be having. So I've spent a long time, I've actually sort of come up with my own little model of practice, which covers things such as, well, if we've got a high-performance culture, we'd need to understand the people we've got involved and people then, out of people, it's it's about awareness and self-awareness. Have we got the right people, the skill sets? There's a huge amount just in that. And then you go to this notion of envisioning, which is a term Peter Kamek, who's a, 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 a real authority on leadership, talks about. And, and, and this envisioning encompasses everything about the organisation, what it looks like now, what it was, but what we see it being into the future rather than just a vision. And I, I love that term envisioning because it encompasses. And then what are the values and the behaviours that drop out from that? And then you've got notions of a high level of trust. And then you've got notions of um, is this a learning environment? Uh, are we all aligned and agreed? Um, how do we measure success? So I've sort of developed this little... Um, my own model of practice, which allows me to go into environments and you can actually sort of almost start to smell it. You can sniff it and you go, yep, I'm seeing good people. I'm seeing skillful leadership by the by the people, how they're working with their uh, other people. It's clear where they're headed. The behaviours are evident in the way people operate and you can actually start to get a real feel. Um, so, I, you know, <laughs> short short answer is culture is really challenging for any leader and they've got to constantly work on all those facets. It's not that every facet will be there really strongly all the time, but you need all of them at a critical level Yeah, and it takes work. Yeah. It's not just something you can assume. Um, and that's, interestingly enough, I've been into a couple of larger organisations in Christchurch where we've explored that notion of how well are you doing in these areas? Yeah. So for me, building that high-performance culture is crucial in understanding the elements that it's not one thing, but there are things that you can do better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you kind of alluded, you, know, you, you sort of crossed um, – Across sort of um, you know, disciplines, there you talked about sport, you know, and then sort of in a when you say organisations, I'm assuming you're sort of talking about a sort of a business organisation. Yes. So, you know, a high performance culture is the the, the the key facets. From if I'm sort of paraphrasing you, are very similar in, in a sporting environment or a, or a business. Context. Well, the, the irony is, Maddie, when we back in 2000 with Don, when we first started exploring this notion of high performance, we borrowed an enormous amount from the corporate world uh, and the worlds of social psychology, behavioural psychology, positive psychology, all those different fields. 
um, the work that's been done by um, organisations like DDI and the states, the big corporate organisations in Lominga, competency-based frameworks. We explored all that stuff and started saying, what can we apply to sport? And there was really good connection. The key was we actually went and did it. So we sat down and built a success profile with coaches, similar to what they do with a CEO. But we actually did it and we implemented it and we used it as a means to, to make sure we were getting the right coaches, what are the characteristics. The irony is sport. Uh, the corporates are now really interested what, We've done. Yeah, it's come full circle. It's almost. come full circle, and it's it's kind of it's kind of bizarre, really. That you know, they have a, a lot of corporates have this stuff at their disposal. They talk about it, but they don't necessarily do it because they get stuck in the business of doing the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of a, it's it's one of those things that's sharpening the axe, isn't it? You know, yeah, you either sharpen you can't chop wood all day. You got to sharpen it every now and then. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. It is an interesting. Um, I mean, cultures is 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 um, such a huge facet of of performance, particularly in a team environment. And you know, ninety five percent of things these days are a team environment, no matter what you're doing. Um, what are the best leaders doing in regards to, you know, like you've obviously been in lots of different organisations, lots of different teams. Have you ever seen someone and been like, holy moly, they are just nailing their culture aspect of what they're doing? And if so, what were they doing? Um, well, look, it, it, there's been unique circumstances uh, and every, every circumstance is unique in terms of how they go about building it. So obviously, you know, for the Crusaders under Scott Robinson, the notion of the theming each year is a, is a huge part of how they keep their fundamental culture going. Uh, when I was working with um, the Winter Olympic Programme with, with Tom Wilmont, who's still the, the head coach of the, our Olympic Programme, the notion of culture there was totally different because you, the athletes are... These are athletes who share with their, their their hardest competitor. They'll actually talk about the tricks they're doing. With. So the culture again, yes, was different, different, and yeah. it was a different one. It was more a collaborative culture, yeah, because it's not a combative sport. Yes. So there's a whole lot of context um, around that. One of the things, if you talk about coaching culture, one of the things we've tried to do, and in, in, in my last five years at New Zealand Cricket, was develop this notion of a collaborative coaching community that it didn't matter if I was coaching against you, our teams were playing against each other, but you and I actually shared more in common than we probably did with our players as coaches. Yeah. Now, there's another piece of culture that you're yes. trying to shift, yeah. which is then about sharing and learning and knowing that if we do that, we both get better. Yeah, it's a sort of rising tide lifts all boats, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. You've got to have that rising tide, and, and not everyone will get right to the top, but without this rising tide and acknowledging and recognising um, but, you know, in general, coaches who, you know, that recognition and acknowledgement of, of, of effort and performance, and performance might not be about winning mm -hmm. or it is ultimately trying to win, but the performance might not have been good enough to win, but it was still a good performance. Those things are, are important. Other things that are generally the coaches who are shifting towards um, – making sure the, the athletes they've got are really clear on what their purpose is. So that purpose piece, the coaches who really get that well-defined with, with their athletes or players, then um, what is it you want to be really, really good at? So, you know, I, I've seen your bucket list. <laughs> there's your purpose. Yeah. And then there's some stuff that you said, hey, this is what I want to master. Mm -hmm. I want to be really good at this. And then the coaches who are able to let go a little bit and say, okay, have a go. Yeah. The command and control is sort of shifting. I mean, I'm not saying there's not a time when a coach in an environment cannot say, Maddie, I need you to do this. But in general, if we have a, a group of players or athletes who can find the solution, it's a much more powerful learning outcome. Yeah, a bit of autonomy, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely that autonomy. And, and you go into environments where you see, yep, they're really clear on their purpose. They know what they want to be good at and they need to be good at and they've got some space to go in and experiment and have a crack at it, mm -hmm. you generally find that that's a pretty good environment, yeah. 
a pretty yeah. good learning environment. And I guess that's a, that's a, again that transcends all sort of endeavours. That's um, you know if you've got a leader or a manager or a coach or a captain or whatever it is, and if they can sort of you know give you the skills and and then let you sort of step out on your own and have a swing and and maybe make a mistake, and they're sort of there to support you, but also encourage you back in the right direction. That's kind of the the fundamental idea of it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, get get really you know that comes back to your people. You know, right back yeah. to that start of a culture. Get yeah. the right people with the skill set you're after or the potential or the high potential mm -hmm. and then get out of their way. I yeah. heard that someone say that, you know, I, I employ really good people and I get out of their way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> hey, one. that doesn't mean to say there isn't a time when as leader with the responsibilities that you may have to, we talk about um, uh, level one leadership, which might be, look, I'm making a decision and it's based on this and we just need to do this. And often in times of crisis, yes. <laughs> COVID, yeah. sometimes leaders need to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so well, let's, let's sort of stick with that then a little bit. You know, like this year, you know, when we talk about things like COVID, it's been a um, – you know, it's been a remarkable and and dysfunctional and you know a year that no one could have imagined. You know, you know when we talk about what the best leaders have done in a time like this in the last sort of six months, and you know, just before we got on, we were talking a lot about you know knowing the theory but also putting it into practice. And um, you know, in your mind, what have you seen this year and the challenges that we've faced in 2020? What have the best leaders done? Oh, I think. Um certainty of action is really important. And I don't mean certainty of action as in a knee-jerk reaction. I, I think, you know, a, a deliberate decision-making process, um, which I've observed some uh, not occurring in some instances, but seen it occurring in others. And I often reflect um, a story that Wayne Smith that Smithy told me uh, when he was coaching the Crusaders and they were playing the Brumbies, I think, and Smithy was towards the autonomous end of the spectrum. He wanted the players to make decisions and, you know, and the Brumbies all of a sudden started doing something different. They started putting, and just before half time, and Smithy sort of got walked down to the changing rooms and he got down and they'd started um, opening up the Crusaders and the players were shell-shocked. And, and Smithy would typically ask questions and they actually said, we just need you to tell us what have you seen. And he said, well, it looks as though they're attacking us through the middle. We've got to commit more to the ruck and mall and shut that down because the players were so shell-shocked. Yeah. That's leadership. Yeah. Mark Hammett had a story with the Crusaders again when they are in South Africa and they were down at half-time playing in Johannesburg at Alice Park. Players came in. He said they were just like stunned rabbits. And he said again, I had to he said I needed to take control because they they were looking for leadership. Yeah. So I think part of that notion is when people are in that stunned mullet place, often you need to show leadership. And you know, organizations and I know you you know you own business you own a business, so you had to demonstrate leadership there. People want in those times to be led. Yeah. And I don't think you should um, you know, we should uh, we should second guess ourselves about that. And your best leaders say, I'm here, I'll lead, and I'll lead in a really deliberate and thoughtful way. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way. You know, we, we sort of, it's almost the opposite of we're talking about giving people autonomy when people enter a time of, you know, crisis might be an exaggeratory term for, you know, a sport a sporting environment. But when we talk about stuff that's happened this year, and um, Gilbert actually has this, you know, it's one of the, the you know, great, one of his many teachings, <laughs> great teachings, but um, he said that the, 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 the you know, challenging the paradigm of leadership. And he talked about um, not positive and not negative, but clear, like absolute clarity. And I think, you know, like um, particularly, um, you know, in times of crisis, people just do need some certainty because there's a lot of uncertainty, whether it's a team that's beating you for a team for a reason you can't comprehend or it's a, a worldwide health pandemic. It's um, There's a lot of uncertainty with people. And I think the my insight anyway would be the best leaders can simply provide clarity or provide certainty in times of extreme uncertainty. Absolutely. And they can. that doesn't mean to say they do that in an authoritative matter. They can still use huge amounts of awareness and self-awareness, mm -hmm. demonstrate care, high levels of trust. That can all still be in there as opposed to I'll point the finger at you and I'll just you know, kind of get on my high horse. That's, and there has been some of that. You know, you look at some organisations that have had knee-jerk reactions and just laid people off. 
Uh, I was talking to an accountant the other day, a friend of mine, neighbour actually, uh, who deals with a number of big firms and he says, I've seen the numbers and he said actually some places, he said that they just, they pushed the button far too quickly. Yeah. Which is interesting because if you read the media, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you can get a, a particular, you can get another view of the world. Yeah. Um, but he said, hey, uh, and to me, what sort of leadership was that? Yes. Um, and, and, you know, and I guess leaders in sport, though, have had to manage with disruption to programs and go, uh, so as you know, still keep close to Angus Gardner, who's now the high performance director of rugby at the Crusaders. And the leadership there was, well, how do we modify our program now without knowing what the competition structure looks like? So we need to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and that's that, yep, certain, uh, certainty and uncertainty. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but with skillful application of, of, of all the humanistic um, yeah. capacities that a, that a really good leader would have. Yeah. I think, I think um, you know, times of, I don't want to say crisis or uncertainty, but that's when real leaders are made, I think, you know. Yes. And, and um, you know, I, I, Tony Rob, I went to a Tony Robbins event. It was about three or four days. And one, okay. of the, one of the best things I took out of it, what he said, he said, leadership's easy when everything's going well. He said, the great leaders are defined by what they do when the whole thing's burning down. Yes. And I just, look, I just, I just it resonates with me. No, off the top of my head, it, it, it stuck with me so, so well. And I think that, you know, you know, when things are going well, when, you know, whether it's a team's winning or your industry is inflated or in high demand, it's really easy to sit back and go, hey, I'm doing a great job. But, you know, true leadership is is defined by what you do when, you know, the shit's hitting the fan. Absolutely. That's where those, well, that's, you know, that's uh, we talk in skill acquisition about emergent behaviours, but it applies to the psychology of behaviour. That's where you'll see actually emergent behaviours Appearing, yeah. And the other piece too, I think, uh, Maddie, is that the, the leaders who are still able to link to the values of the organisation. Now we see a disconnect between leadership behaviours and what the values, the espoused values are. That's when the old radar starts twitching. I reckon around leadership. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I was talking to a, a prominent lawyer who's a, a good mate of mine that I played a bit of cricket with years ago. Uh, and they had something like 400 staff nationally and didn't lay off one person, he said, because as partners we looked at our values and we saw our values and we said, well, if we, if we, if we, if we wrote these as partners, we need to live by them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's and, tough you know, and well. it, it was tough. He said this, this will, it was tough for us. He said, but uh, we sat there with clear, clear minds. Yeah. yeah, I mean, values are easy to write on your wall, aren't they? But they're, they're, they can Correct. be difficult to, to yeah. stand by. Yeah. Um, but it's good, you know, if you do have an organisation that will, you know, filter, you know, decisions in times like this through their value system, you know, it tends to, that's when you talk about creating a culture, those are those small things that make a huge difference in, in the mind of... Actually, it's like, a wonderful analogy. I might flog that. that <laughs> filter, filter the value, filter decision-making through the values. That's that's appropriate, totally appropriate and you might go through and say actually this still links to our this still is within the bounds of our values and we need to make this decision yeah well at least they went through that process yeah yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah um, and we've sort of you know brought values in you know sort of off the off the side here but you know in I guess what role do values have in a in a, in a team or a, um, you know a high performance environment we, you know it's in, in business sense people probably can understand that you know it's like um, you know it's like this is the way that, that our business you know runs and these are the things that are important to us in a sort of sporting or you know athlete focused environment what sort of role do values play and, and how do they sort of you know come to great question and look i think there's two components one just as we've discussed coaching and management around how they make decisions um you know for instance if player welfare is a value then what does selection policies look like based on what player welfare and is that truly lived or do we put the player out there knowing that 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 as coach the medical advice has told me not to play but i made a decision now, good organisations that I've worked in uh, have lived that value and said, and they will err on the side of caution. Others I know have thrown people out there. So that's one example yes, of what, yeah. how important it is. At a player level, I think there's two things. There's 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 uh, the cultural piece when you come in here. These are the things we value, and this is how we'll behave, which can hope you know generally is the way that newer players are assimilated into the environment. 
doesn't matter what sport it is. Mm-hmm. There are certain ways that we operate in here because it works and it's based on these values. And I think that connection is strong. Who drives that? Ultimately, if you've got the players or the athletes themselves driving that to the newer players, that's the most powerful. But at times, it's useful as a means. If I'm sitting with you as and you, you know, we're having a performance discussion, I can use the values to say, "Hey, well, Maddie, you know, you've identified these areas that you want to improve in." And one of our values is, is self-care or looking after ourselves. And, you know, tell me about your lifestyle at the moment. Yeah. Where's that? And a, a skillful coach or, or S&C conditioner or a medical person will use those values as a means for ensuring performance is enhanced. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's that takes skillful coaching, skillful use of that um, to do that. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, yeah. Yeah, to do it well anyway. To do it yeah, well, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, when we talk about things like, um, you know, obviously a, a good culture is very conducive to, you know, or is definitely a key element in, in creating a high-performance environment. Obviously, we're going to say a poor culture is, um, you know, is the opposite. Um, what are some of the other sort of, you know, barriers to a high-performance team? You know, if, 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 if you, you know you know, you pick the best group of players or the best, you know, you, you know, you what you perceive to be the best performers and you put them in a group together and you're saying, for some reason our culture's terrible, the 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 when we're not able to provide the results consistently, what are some of the things that you might look at and say, hey look, you know, this might be where we're going wrong. You know, I guess what are some of the barriers to 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 a team or an organization not performing well? In those situations, I'd probably start looking at the the two notions of culture around clarity and alignment. So, you know, if we've gone through and said we've got good people, we've got good coaches, we're clear on our on our envision, envisioning and our values and our behaviours, we do have a learning environment, uh, you know, we've gone through and done that, but is that clarity and is that alignment? So are, are we hearing different things, which is often, you know, is the learner experiencing my, how is the learner experiencing my teaching or my coaching? Yeah, we're on the same page. And... Sometimes we make assumptions. And that alignment piece is, you know, actually are we all headed in the same direction? Have we made an assumption around that? Uh, and it might be a misinterpretation or we have players who are playing a, 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 playing a different game or yeah. playing a different tactic yeah. or, or, or have a different view of how the race should go. Mm-hmm. And those are, if there's a lack of consistency there and everything else is looking kind of okay, that's probably where I'd go Yeah, and, and get clarity from – and that might then circle back to say, well, actually, we might not have the right people yes. because they're yeah, not aligned. Not aligned, yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's kind of um, – the I use the example of my culture framework of the matrix, which I've never worked out the end of the movie, <laughs> meeting yet. But, you know, it's this multidimensional thing that everything is actually linked together that there often is not one causal piece that you've got to interpret maybe two that one might lead to another. Yeah. And that's uh, that's another skill of coaching that you don't learn as coaching 101, yeah. you know. it's <laughs> Yeah, I guess the, 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 the small things, you know, done, there's a book by James Clear, Atomic Habits, I'm not sure if you read yeah, it, but yeah. it's, it's that Atomic sort of habits, compounding yes. of yeah. effect of, of small things done well can yeah. be called great things, but also equally if there's a few things out and they're done consistently on like, a regular basis, they can have just as great of effect absolutely. in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. it's a yeah. Really, really good point. Yeah. Um, you, your title with the Crusaders um, was High Performance Leader. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess, you know, from the outside, I would look at an organisation like that and say the whole purpose of them is to is to perform well. So what are sort of, you know, from, from someone who hasn't had an insight into that, what are the sort of key responsibilities in a role like that? Like what, what did you do? Well, bearing in mind that it's probably changed a little bit now that Angus has been there for four or five years or, four, or so, but... Uh, well, generally responsible for all the performance staff. So the coaching staff, medical, sports science analysts, and, and the strength and conditioning staff, and then making sure that they have all the resources they need to deliver the program, um, and that they are constantly upskilled. And you know, we we had a learning environment. Um, that was some of the key stuff I went in with. Uh, um, the other piece is that it was responsible for contracting. So the at that stage, it was a $6 million budget from the uh, from New Zealand Rugby Union that was spread over four years that you had to work out 
the values of players and yeah. some of that was prescribed and who are you going to bring in and yeah so that was a pretty time consuming um, task and yeah uh, took took <laughs> took yeah. a lot of cognitive effort for me I bet uh, yeah. I mean, you traditionally wouldn't put contracting under the I mean I mean I wouldn't as uh, you know my sort of you know very naive approach you know I wouldn't think contracting would be falling yeah the it's it, it is a challenge and it's partly I guess a challenge around the resourcing, how many resource people, I mean, ideally, if you look at AFL clubs, which have some really good structures, and I spent some time with um, with Hawthorne mainly, they have a contracts manager who actually has an accounting background, whose role is to run that side of things, yeah. interacts with the coach and the high performance leader to make the decisions, but the mechanics of it are covered by them. Mm-hmm. AFL has significant yes. <laughs> more amounts of money than yeah. than, the, than um, Super Rugby does, but um, and, and so yeah, so there was always a bit of a compromise around wanting to grow the people side, but then also this transactional piece around contracting yes. uh, did cause. And the other challenge we had was um, <clears throat> the time I the, the three years I had there was that transition when we got the new facilities built, yeah, which was crucial because at that point. Um, we, you know, the squad numbers are up to 40 and we had a gym that could fit 20 and it was yeah. under the stands and yeah. we just weren't fit for purpose from a facility. We had great players, yeah. great coaches, great staff, really good program, yeah. strong culture. Yeah. But it was a classic example where the bricks and mortar did matter. Yeah. Uh, and they've got to be fit for purpose. So, I, you know, you go back to a derailer of high-performance programs, sometimes too much can be a derailer mm-hmm. because it creates... Um, a dependency and complacency. Yeah. But you do need fit for purpose. Yeah. And, you know, they've, uh, the cool thing is, again, behind the scenes, um, <laughs> wonderful facility down there that's fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's certainly going to be a yeah. key element. So my, my day was spent looking at budget spreadsheets for the contracting, but also trying to help um, people get better and help myself yeah. get better as well in the role. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and did you work with players, like sort of on a, on a, on a um, you know, I guess sort of a, I know you've got sort of a sports psych sort of background. Is that something you No, <coughs> no. We, I mean, we had um, sports psych intervention. Um, at a, some of the players worked individually with mm. John Quinn at that stage, but yeah. we had different. Yeah. So, no, I uh, because of the fact that I was often doing the contracting, Yeah. It, it was a. It was. It could be. A, I, I would have performance conversations around what contracting might look like mm-hmm. with players, um, often with their agent. Yeah. There as well, so that we were trying to work out, and, and rather than what the dollar figure looked like, it was what is your performance and what does the data tell us and what does the big picture look like. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Try, trying to make it less of a transactional approach and more. Transformational, and we, mm-hmm. we had some success with one or two players who actually thought they were worth this. But when they looked at everything, they actually said, "Oh no, I see, I see now." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. You actually do. You know, there's some real measurements in place to. Yeah, help. we can pull out. You know, data. Uh, the 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 analysis. Uh, the analysts had all the data, so you yeah. know, we could we could compare wings for carry yeah. meters carried um, position. Yeah, which would tell us. And, and you know, you go into an you go into a negotiating situation with some good data. Yeah, you don't have to have heated arguments. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which and is it, not a good place to be in negotiation. No, anyway. not at all. But you know, that's just, you know, in um, you know, particularly probably more of a business environment. You know, KPIs are, are very accessible and, and common things. I you know, again, naive in regards to sports. So it's quite interesting that you can still pull those out of a you know. Yeah, and use them as part of a, an argument one one way or the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, a lot of your work now is sort of working with coaches. You know, you're sort of the coach of the coaches. Yes. Um, what does that involve? You know, I don't, I don't really have, you know, much of, again, not much experience in that, but what would... Yeah, great question. <laughs> Sometimes contemplate what is it the hell I do. Um, look, I was fortunate way back in 2000, early 2000s, um, that uh, there was a group of us, including Don Tricker, we got to spend two one-week residentials with a guy called Sir John Whitmore. So Sir John unfortunately passed away start of last year, I think. He basically developed the the, the concept of coaching for performance using the GROW model. 
and I, I don't know whether you've heard of the GROW model. So, so it's internationally recognised as a, as a methodology for coaching. For instance, Matt, you know, what, what, you know, tell me what's going on at the moment in your business world. What goals have you set yourself? What opportunities or options have you got available? And what will you commit to? That's the GROW model yeah. in 30 seconds, well, less than 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not that simple. <laughs> and so we spent, uh, and Sir John was a fascinating man. He helped um, Timothy Galway write the inner book of skiing. Okay. You've heard of the inner book of, no, oh, the no. inner game, sorry, the inner game of tennis. No, I haven't heard of that. Okay, the inner game of tennis and there's an inner game of skiing. And so Sir John helped Timothy Galway write that. Um, Yeah, you'd be interested, fascinated in the inner game stuff. Um, So he helped develop a coaching philosophy, I guess. And it's really about, based around understanding, uh, first building the rapport or the connection with a coach, establishing a level of trust, exploring what their reality looks like at the moment relative to what the things they've set themselves they'd like to achieve. And that's your gap analysis, I guess. Where are they at the moment? Where they would like to be? And and then what options have we got to try and close that? So it might be for some coaches just starting off, they go, my technical knowledge isn't good enough. I don't know enough about the sport. Okay, let's upskill there. But then they come to the realisation, actually, I know some stuff, but actually I'm not particularly good at coaching it or helping others learn. Okay, what do we need to do there? And we just layer by layer. Yeah. Grow the and and this is you know I I would suggest my experience over the last twenty odd years would say that you're probably looking at about five years for transitions from from certain behaviours to effectiveness as a coach. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and and you know, like anything, I would assume that the best coaches are always improving. You know, always learning, always you know you know the. the the people that I've been around that are, you know, that are at the top of their fields and whatever pursuit, whether it's business or sport, have, you know, regardless of their age, are always still, you know, flat out focused on trying to get better. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's that notion of um, uh, intellectual humility, which That's is… a good term. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so there's some characteristics of, of high-performance coaches. They're reflective in their practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they keep constantly working on their awareness, self-awareness and awareness of others. They are uh, lifelong learners, just as you've said, and they um, establish high levels of trust. They're also manage, they're, they're risk takers but managed risk. Yeah. So, so they will be prepared to implement their learning and not stay in the one spot. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, we, we've got some pretty clear competencies. Uh, there's a term called... Um, um, uh, what do we call it? Um, le- yeah, learning. Yeah, the learning agility is the other piece. So, yeah. not only of, am I intellectually humble, which means I'm open to learning, yeah. but I'm learning agile that I can take something. It might be academically really well researched, and someone's. But I go, I'm going to have a crack at that because I understand the risk profile and I think there's value here, and they'll, they'll they'll be able to implement it really quickly. Yeah. Unlike business, where you know you might see from start to go. You could be looking at 12 months by the yeah. time something, whereas our best yeah. coaches will go, I'm prepared to have a go at that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a great little book by a guy called Ryan Smerick who's a professor in the States at Northwestern. He wrote called, um, it's about, I think it's called um, Learning Culture and Environments. And one of the notions he actually talks about is this intellectual humility yeah. or intellectual arrogance. Yes. And yeah. that's that's uh, that's a key. The moment I, I know that. Yeah, yeah, no, done that. Yeah, okay. You probably so when yeah. you listen to people's language and their dialogue, it can be quite insightful. Yeah, and I think again that that transcends almost everything. You know, you 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 can be you know humble or arrogant at any stage of any pursuit and in any level. Well, see, look, this morning, you know, I've already you know for me, um, values are the filter which we put decision making through. Yes. So yeah, you've yeah, said yeah, it, yeah, I've yeah. learned it, I've flogged it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unless we're constantly open to saying yeah. how do other people view the world, yeah. uh, we're, we're going to stay in the same spot. Yeah. And that's why, you know, interaction for me is so powerful. I love it because you're just constantly 
cheapest. You know, I didn't I didn't see that from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like I like the, the the agility, which is the you know the courage to actually put something you know into action. And one thing that automatically springs to mind, I can't remember if it might have been uh, Sir Graham Henry when it was sort of leading up to that World Cup, and he had that real focus on depth. Remember, he was just like playing you know like all the games in the three years leading up to us. He would just play all these different players, and there's his idea was around that he knew that you know things like injuries and you know and um you know and, and player performance would could could affect his ability to have a starting 15 that he wanted so he went right we're just going to have I want you know I want 36 players that have all had significant amount of experience and I remember him just getting criticized for it so much yeah, yeah. thinking like you know all the media were like why is he not playing the best players we're 12 months out from a world cup and he's still you know trialing people but you know he obviously had the last laugh and again that's probably a you know the ability that courage to try something that you know, he believed in that probably wasn't uh, widely practiced. Well, uh, exactly. And if we if we don't and uh, if we don't allow players to learn, and if we don't learn as coaches from what we're observing, <coughs> we will only play the best or, or put the best team pursuit onto the track or play the best eleven. And then, at a moment of crisis, we have high expectations of the people we've never given an opportunity to to go out and perform. Yeah. When in fact we're setting up for failure, and the other piece there too, um, Maddie, is this constant notion of performance or winning versus performance. When you can still have good performances, not win, and those performances are part of our learning, and they tell us some stuff which lead us to the things we do want to win. And you know, rugby, I think, has that notion: we need to win every game, and that's not you know, as other teams get better, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting, interest, very interesting terms, winning and performance and, and trying to relate them and how, how they do connect. And I guess it comes down to clarity of defining what success, success is, looks like looks absolutely like for yep. that team. And, yep. um, you know, I remember Gilbert putting up two pitches and it was it was Richie McCaw sitting at the press conference after 2003, I think it was, and, you know, with his yes. head in his hands and, um, you know, and then there was one, you know, obviously the, the following tournaments where he had the, had the trophy and he said that it was, um, he said, and he pointed at the one where he had the trophy, he said, this, this person was created by this person yes. and he pointed at the one with his head in his hands and, um, yeah, sometimes it's those things you learn the most from. Well, you know, you look at what, you look at the situation we're in now, and what will our pictures look like in five years' time as a society? As a, and what will we have learned? Yeah, uh, be the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah I, I really like that that winning versus performance. I've never thought about that before. Um, you know, and how they can probably differ quite a lot because um, I had a, a guy called Andy Beale on the podcast and he um, was sort of like an endurance guy, just does yes. all sorts of crazy things and, um, and, and, and you know, very long distance and, and a lot of time and a lot of effort and, and incredibly hard. And, um, you know, one of the things he talks about is, is winning is more of a, a function of who else turns up rather than how well you perform. And and I really like that. And and you know when you're talking about a, um, you know, uh, an event, for example, if you're a you know say he's a, a cyclist, you know he could go out and have you know a perfect race, and whether he ends up in first place or last place is entirely a role of uh, a function of of who else decides to enter the event that day. Yeah. Um. And you know defining what. A, a successful performance would look like to you before entering something is probably a, a really good idea. Well, look, yeah, I know you've, you've, you've done endurance events and, you know, the, the thing is your checklist, you've got, every, you know, straight away if you go back consistency of performance, have I, yeah, I, I, yeah I've done the coast to coast and I'm probably guilty of it too, but, but you know, you hear of athletes who have never used a particular nutrition product and they use it on the day of the race but they've yeah. never tried it before. Well, that to me is not... That's the performances that uh, underneath, you know, yeah. that's, a, that's a black mark. To yes. But you could go through and say, hey, in that race today, I, my pre-list, I had all my equipment, I was well-rested, I nutrition, everything was in place there, my gear was in good nick, uh, my bike performed perfectly, I rode the race of my life, I had great splits, my, I did a PB at the end, uh, and I had nothing left in the tank, I know, know I'd given it all, and I got second by two seconds. Okay. 
I've still got a whole lot of measures there that yeah. I know that I nailed everything I could yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think it's important to have those, particularly with young people, you know, because it, it, you know when you look from the outside, they, they don't see much of that. It's hard to it's hard to give a young person, you know, I say young person, anyone under probably twenty, the you know if you look at a high school, um, you know, first fifteen for example, and, and they lose the final by you know three points, they probably all feel like absolute, you know. You know, they couldn't have done worse, but if you put some measures in, in place prior to what it, you know what a what a good performance looks like, there's a wonderful wee story, Maddie. Um, there's a, a guy called um, Henry Bibby who played under John Wooden at UCLA and the famous basketball teams with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was called Lewis Sinder then, and yeah. Bill Walton. They all played in those famous teams. And Henry Bibby himself became a coach after he'd finished. He played professionally as well and was a, he may have been a Hall of Famer. And then he coached in both the women's NBA, uh, NBA and, the, and the men's competition. And he went back and coached in the NCAA competition. And in one of the, they got to the final in the NCAA um, one. And his team, he was coaching, lost in double extra overtime. <laughs> <laughs> And they were at the press conference afterwards and the American reporters, as they do, always talk to the coach and they said, Coach Bibby, um, you didn't win today. And before the reporters could get any further, he said, you guys, we had wins out there today you didn't even see. And, I mean, that that yeah. is a coach who's got it together, who understood the outcome versus the performance. Yeah. That, what, double extra overtime. Yeah. <laughs> if you read um, Moneyball by Michael Lewis – you know, getting to the baseball playoffs, uh, once you're in the playoffs, it's kind of a toss of a coin yeah. because the two best teams are there and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said getting to the playoffs is the hardest thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Oh, it's yeah. an interesting conundrum. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned before, but, you know, we, we talk about, you know, co- coaches and, and generally a coach, you know, in, in my mind would sort of fit a certain persona, but then you throw someone like Scott Robinson into the mix and he sort of seems to like break every mould of what a traditional, you know, um, you know, first class rugby, you know, sports coach is going to look like. Um, but he's doing incredibly well. You know, you look at the the results that the team has yep. had, it, it, you sort of can't knock what he's doing. But at the same time, it seems so um, counterintuitive. Yeah, and it's a great question. Look, and I've obviously worked a little bit with Scott when he was the, the Canterbury coach, um, and uh, part of the Crusader role was also that you did the contracting for Canterbury. Uh, so you have this outward kind of persona that is Scott, but also you have someone who's very reflective, who's been through the Coach Accelerator program and has developed a clear sense of um, being himself but skillfully. Uh, is creative in his thinking in terms of, of uh, but open to, you know, someone is not creative if they're not open to learning. So there's, there's still some fundamentals there that uh, no different. Steve Hansen is not the same persona, but highly reflective, open to learning, uh, really uh, high levels of being able to connect with individuals, which Scott can do too just coming at it from different angles. Yeah. So, you know, kind of what you see is still underneath. There's some the stuff there things, that's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Um, and and it would be uh, a dull old world if we if, if that outward projection were, were all the same, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. I think he's, he's, yeah. he's wonderfully refreshing. It's yeah. just it's such a, you know, when you look at, you know, a, um, it's a typical coach and, and the, the, the you know, Steve Hansen is a great example of his, of his, you know, he doesn't seem very sort of, doesn't have that sort of hyper-energetic sort of, you know, persona, but Scott does and they, they both seem to be very successful. Yeah, and again, look, our athletes are changing. They, you know, as I say to a lot of coaches, yep, your athletes, you're going to get older and the athletes you're going to engage with will be younger and younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when we first start coaching you, they change maybe that. But by the time we finish coaching, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and who's and that's that learning agility. So the way Scott operates now, in twenty years' time, when he's still coaching, there may be some modification of how he operates. Yeah, and that's just because of who am, who am I coaching and what yeah. are their needs, which yeah. is a real fundamental. I mean, I could I could coach you the way I think you should be coached, but that may not be productive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. Oh, it's, it's a great point. Yeah. That, that underneath it all, there, there's the same key. There's elements some key elements there that, that, that are similar, that, and the, the persona yeah. on top of it is, um, is, is, is almost you know, doesn't play a huge role. And as long as I've got those key things that they're doing underneath. And, and but but uh, you know, in terms of energizing the group, and and now you've got a mature group, does that need to change a little bit? Because they'll still be young next year, but um, they'll be more mature than they were. Yeah. yeah so d- how does that alter the environment? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very yeah. interesting. Um, one of the things I, I, I took off um, your website, which I really liked, it said, um, you know, one of the things that you, you, you do for work, I guess, is, is strength-based coaching po- based on positive psychology, learned optim- optimism, and growth mindset. Like all of those terms sort of just shot out to me. Can you sort of explain, you know, what that is? Well, I've been lucky. I've had some great oh, – they're not mentors. They're more people I engage with like this. So Theo Felbrugger, um, um, Sven Hansen, who's, who operates out of Auckland, another good friend of mine, Alex McKenzie, um, and, and a, 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 a young guy oh, – I say young because he's the same age as me – out of um, – Perth called Brendan Spillane and where we've, you know, we've all come together and developed saying, hey, the research shows us that if I capture the behaviours I want to see and I see it and I reinforce it, I'm more likely to get the frequency of that to go up in a player or an athlete. So that's the strengths pass. But what are you good at and when do I see it and I reinforce it because it will keep going? The vehicles I can use are positive psychology, which are understanding where you sit on the optimistic, the pessimistic spectrum. Because you can still be a slightly pessimistic, but open to learning and get better. Mm-hmm. If I understand that as a coach, I can use that. Where is your mindset? Are you the green or the red? Are you growth? Or will you say, I don't think I can do that? You know, And, and then how do I use my skillful coaching to shift that to... I don't think you can do that yet, Maddie, but I'm pretty sure in a few weeks you will. Or we'll see it more and more as you go, you know, and, and, and how we use the, those, those sorts of tools um, to, to, to continually um, focus on the behaviours we want to see. Yeah. That doesn't mean to say I'm not corrective if I'm seeing something that's not right, but, you know, if I'm constantly correcting you, then I'm taking you to a different place mentally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a frustrating experience. Yeah, I, lo- I like the um, that sort of strength based stuff, and you know, it's, it's you simplify it like that. It sounds like a, a very you know simple concept and makes a lot of sense, I guess, to just you know, find the things that are doing well and and and, and reward them and recognise them and, and encourage them further. I mean, that sort of works in business as well. That's you know when you talk about things like I'm reading. Um, you would have read Drive, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm reading that at the moment, um, and he. he Completely sort of throws that model of he calls it motivation 2.0 out the window a little bit. Um, but you know, in business, we still use that a lot, and you get the you know you get a commission pretty much based on performance. Do things like that happen in sport? Are there are there? I mean, I, I kind of know there are some ways like sort of a performance based incentives. Yeah, there's performance bonuses. I've been working with a coach actually helping um, work out what the um, performance bonus in the contract would potentially look like. And, of course, you could put it on the win or loss, but then there's no control over that. Yeah. So what I'm saying is to them, your bonus needs to be based around your coach performance and things that you have some control over. Um, so, yes, they, and again, uh, they're not necessarily the all or nothing. So they, And players, you know, would typically have some form of bonus depending on uh, on who they are and, you know, yep. what the environment is. So it's not unusual to have it in there. But again, you know, they they, they sort of say, you know, money short-term motivator but purpose goal. Yeah. Reason for being is, is the long, you know, is the longer-term yeah. driver. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and interesting, you know, if you if you were to sit down and have a conversation with Steve Hansen, you know, he was strongly in the strength space. He was constantly looking, what's this guy good at? okay, we've got to make them even better so they're the best in the world at that. It doesn't matter if they're only average at this. That's enough. But this is the difference. Yeah. And that's a, t- that's a really different mindset. Um, and it comes back to have I got the right people? Yes. And have I got the complementary skill sets? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and in particularly in a, in a team environment, you know, they, they – you know, um, Sophie Pascoe talked a lot about having the right people on her bus. She used the bus analogy. Yeah, um, yep. and it was very, 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 very powerful for her. Um, your 
doing work with you know businesses now you know like what sort of you know obviously you've, you've spent you know 20 years you know two decades or so in, in sort of high performance sport what's the transition been like for you into a business environment and and sort of has it you know we've talked about the synergies between you know the the, the different fields has it been quite an easy process you know are there a lot of similarities I guess, so if I go right back to, you know, over 20 years ago when I started working with Don and, and Graham Robson and, and, and Bruce Blair and some uh, Alex McKenzie and some really key people, Lynn Gunson, uh, businesses did start getting interested. So during the early 2000s, often you get, oh, could you come and be a guest speaker or could you come and just talk to us a little bit about what's happening? And, and so five years ago, I, I sort of thought, there's probably, you know, I've been doing a bit of this every now and then. Why don't I do something? So I put this little business or uh, together called Lightsmith um, with a friend of mine, Ashley Light, who was running the Winter Olympic program. He was the high performance leader. Um, it's less light and more Smith, really, because mm -hmm. Ash is now <laughs> running the Queenstown Medical Centre as mm -hmm. the GM down there. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a sports site background. So over the last five years, I've been fortunate that in my own time, I was able to do um, just piecemeal corporate work with with a whole lot of different organisations, and I guess craft a little bit of what the interaction looked like, what they were after, and you know whether it was happenstance, good luck, or good planning. Who knows? Things have occurred as they have in the last year, and I'm in a position where I have some stuff that I know is valuable that I've sort of used with some environments. Um, and that I'm just now trying to to grow and say how I think there's value here. It's, yeah. So it's not a bespoke. Uh, Matt, you know, you see, if you go online, you can be inundated with people who are performance consultants or coaches, and mm. they'll have nice glossy products, and they'll. Uh, whereas I, I don't have a glossy. I haven't got a pamphlet. I don't think I've got any business cards actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more again about. What are they after? What are the strengths? Where are the areas? Where's the gaps? And how do we work with you as an individual or this group to grow their capability? Yeah. And, yeah, it's probably um, – it's interesting because the gateway into um, a lot of organ bigger organisations is often the HR department. Yeah. Who, no disrespect, my wife works in corporate recruitment. So yeah. she <laughs> but, you know, they, they often have a linear view of what learning looks like. Yeah, so those have been some of the interesting challenges to say, hey, the learning has actually, or, or this material has actually come from the world of corporate 20 to 30 years ago. We've used it. We've got really good evidence of how it works, and yeah. <laughs> we think there's something still to offer. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's been, I wouldn't call it difficult or challenging, I'd call it interesting Yeah, at the moment. You enjoying yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, like everyone, we're not immune from the anxiety of what the future looks like. <laughs> we just have some strategies to cope with it. Yeah. Exercise, yeah. nutrition, mindfulness. Yeah, rest. <laughs> well, yeah, rest. You know, for yeah. me, mindfulness is going fishing or reading a book. Yeah. Um, but for other people, it'll be doing yoga yeah. or music. So, so I think those things, uh, for anyone who's going through any change process, as John Quinn will have referred to, I'm sure, or Gilbert will too, is mm -hmm. a, a hugely important. Um, and again, if you're if you're speaking with people about the stuff, you have to be a practitioner yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. It's, yeah, um, yeah. The the audio's got to match the video. So I thought it was a good way to. Oh, put that's, it. Yeah. can I flog that as well? That's <laughs> oh, great. Mate, I think I flogged it. So <laughs> please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, as we finish off, a couple of last questions. Um, you've spent two decades in high performance. What is the best story you have? Can you th is there a story in your mind that you go, you know, like what's your your go to story? And if you're at a, at a drinks and you're at your wife's work and someone just well, you must have something some some something good. Is there a is there a story or a, or a time that you are particularly you know proud of or you know something that you just go, man, this was really really cool. Is there anything that springs to mind at all? Um, look, this. <laughs> it might because I, I work behind the scenes and I work and I and my greatest thrill is when I see coaches change their behaviour over time, which then impacts on how they're coaching, which then impacts on athlete performance, and hearing a conversation. Um, so one of the things we do, one of the, the moments, and it's it's just like most people go, oh, that sounds a naff story. It was working with Tom Wilmot 
when he was um, working with one of the snowboarders at Cadrona. So you stand at the top of a half pipe for a day, you get pretty cold. Mm-hmm. But I also had Tom wired up with wee Bluetooth mic that I can listen to his coaching conversations. So they go down, they come back up on the chairlift, and I can actually listen to these coaching conversations. And then when the athletes is doing another rep, Tom and I can have a coaching conversation yeah. around, oh, this is what I heard you say, da-da-da. And in that coaching Within that day, Tom had changed his language that he was using with the athletes and the athlete actually nailed something that they were trying to do. And, you know, s- snowboarding, if you've ever, uh, you know, if people haven't stood at the top of a half pipe and understood what courage and fear are, well. <laughs> and and to, to for me to sit back and see that transition and I wasn't telling Tom what to say. I was asking him questions, and yeah. I wonder what it would look like if you shaped it like this Yeah. within the space of a day. And to see that translate to an athlete performance was like you go home at the end of that yeah. day going, yeah, um, yeah. That, was, that was a good day. Yeah, it's sort of like yeah. the, the personification of, of your teaching, I guess. You see it sort of yes. unfolding yeah, in a yeah. physical event. So that's not, it's not a, you know, bells and whistles yeah, story. No, 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 it's, no, that's exactly it's, what it's, after. Yeah, it's yeah. the after. It's the stuff in here that, yeah. you know, uh, genuinely in the end I, I made today. Mm-hmm. If, you know, you go home, you, I made someone else's day. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um I don't know if you know Jordan Peterson, a, a sort of popular yes, psychologist. The, um, yeah, 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 the, yeah. And, and he said one thing that stuck with me. It was um, that that success is 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 progressing towards something you value, and um, and it sort of always stuck with me. And you know what you sort of defined then is that you know an athlete making progress is um, is is a through a through a coach that you've worked with is um, is something you value. So as you see it, progress it, and it gives you that sort of sense of pride and, and yeah, joy. yeah, knowing that the and and you know being able to demonstrate. There is actually a causal link here, and, and we've got some work to do. Again, you know, I, and one of the things I think, uh, the other thing I, I take pride in is constantly advocating for coaches because across all our sports in this country, at, at executive and governance level, I think there's still a perception of what coaching looks like as opposed to what it is, mm-hmm. and that then can influence decision making. And we don't have a coaches association in this country. Players have a players association, that, mm-hmm. but the coaches, even the professional ones at the moment, you know, who represents them? Yeah. And for me, I think if nothing else, advocating constantly for coaches is yeah. really important. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Let's, let's, well, what is a what is a coach's role? Do you think? You know, if you were gonna um, if you were gonna define that and say, right, well, this is because I think you're right. I think that um, you know, from the 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 learning that I've done, that's you know. It, a coach's role is, you know, when when you're a when you're a young person growing up, a coach is to teach you how to pass and catch and and where to stand and how to you know get ready for a, whatever it is. But you know, I I doubt that um, you know in a in a first tier sporting environment that they're still being told how to how to catch something. What is a what is a coach? Well, do? well, no, there is still that part, but I think there's um, Gilbert always talks about the three legged still. I might talk about the four legged one. I don't know. Um, the, the thing about high-performance coaching is, is is that strategic piece. There's the strategic thinking of what the campaign plan looks like. So strategy planning, that's a huge piece that, that is a shift. There's the leadership piece, which is which is huge, and that's that leadership up and down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of coaches go and didn't realise I actually have to lead my executive and the board sometimes, and how do I do that skillfully? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that, that can be a challenge. There's then still the um, the piece around the the, um, the training and learning or the practice environment, and there will still be times where I do have to have some hands-on uh, coaching of, of implementing uh, change in behaviours. And then there's the whole, and I don't call it the lead, it's diff- a little bit different, it's the whole management of the, const- the total performance environment. Yeah. You know, those are the four big kind of rocks that... Yeah. So you'll have a, a young coach who's really good at coaching skill development stuff and they get thrust into a head coach role and all of a sudden they haven't been equipped to handle the strategic stuff. Yeah. It's like a whole new world to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and so, you know, for me they're probably the four four kind of pillars, if you like. Yeah, and very um, a lot of synergy with a CEO. You know, like if you take a business environment, all those four things you just talked about are pretty much a job description for a They a, are. A so, you know, CEO. the coach is the CEO of the actual uh, performance program yeah. supported by a high-performance leader yeah. who is 
the umbrella over all that to ensure they have people resources. Yeah. Qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Hey, um, what do you want to leave people with? You know, I always say, you know, that, and 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 I guess it might be, you know, another way to reframe it is, is, as if, if, what do you wish everyone knew? You know, like you've got a lot of experience and really interesting insights. If you know, you could put a, a billboard up and the whole world was going to see it, and you could write a sentence or a phrase or a paragraph. What would you, what would you tell the world? <laughs> See, if you're sticking with a coaching philosophy, mm-hmm. I wouldn't tell them anything because coaching is not about telling. <laughs> However, I would say I would ask a question: What are you constantly curious and inquisitive about? That's great. I love it. And 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 what would that? What would the purpose of that question be? What would it? Just sort of- that then people would be ref- they would. Uh, the eyes would roll back. They'd go to the back part of their brain and they'd start to go. What am I curious about? They'd be reflective. They'd start to develop some self-awareness. What are the reasons I am curious about that? Oh, how, how might other people see that? And it just leads us down a whole line because one of the key things we, we've done over the years, we recognise that one of the things we had to grow in high-performance coaches was first their self-awareness, which then leads to the awareness of others. So one of the first pieces of work we started doing way back in... I reckon 2002 was with Sen Hansen of the Resilience Institute in Auckland mm-hmm. where we ran a two-day emotional competency workshop. So pretty much, you know, if you uh, name most of our really top coaches at the moment will have done some form of emotional competency work. Wow. So it's around self-awareness and awareness it's, it's of others. The self-awareness, awareness of others, managing my behaviours, and, yeah. you know, so – and that comes about people will only engage in – that sort of stuff, if they're curious and inquisitive. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good, a very thought-provoking question. Maybe a, a nice, nice place to leave people. Hey, mate, if, if people listen to this and go, "Hey, look, you know, like I, I really like what he's talking about. I'm interested. I'm curious about maybe exploring a you know a commercial relationship with you. Where can they find you, and, and how can they get in touch?" Well, Matty, I've got a, a, a website called www.lightsmith.co.nz, and I'm. Um, on email at richard at lightsmith.co.nz and, and on uh, cell phone number 021-401-434. And, yep, I'm pretty accessible because um, I love talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> hey, mate, you're a, you're a wonderful man, does some fantastic work and you've shared some um, some really interesting stuff today. So very appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. Jim. Thanks, Matty. You've been great yourself. Okay. <laughs> Cheers, Richard. And there it is, another episode of the Road to Success podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to check out the podcast. I love recording these episodes and the fact that you like listening to them really means a lot to me. So thank you so much to you. And of course, thank you so much to RJ for his time. Some great insights. Um, Man, I took some stuff out of that. I hope you did too. And if you did, if you could do a couple of things for me, it would be very, very much appreciated. Uh, One would be to subscribe to the podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just hit the subscribe button and you'll, you'll hear all the new episodes as they come out. Uh, Secondly, if you could leave a review on uh, iTunes, that'd be much appreciated as well. And probably the most important thing, if you did like the episode, if you could share it with someone who you think might take some value out of it, you can share it on the platform that you're listening on, or alternatively, just go super old school and tell someone to check out the Road to Success podcast. We're on Spotify and iTunes, and that would be hugely appreciated. That's it. We've done another episode. Thank you so much for checking it out. Have a lovely day. Talk to you soon. See ya, bye.